And uh, the title of this morning's message is A Divine Jealousy. A Divine Jealousy. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes to the believers in Corinth, saying, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. This is the heart of the Apostle Paul as he begins this section of this letter that he has written to the believers in Corinth, a place much like our world today. I pray this morning that you would understand the heart of Paul and therefore know the heart of Christ in God toward us in this day. Father, we commit this time into your hands, Lord. I do ask that you would strip us of any preconceived notions that we have in regards to jealousy, maybe a worldly way of thinking about it, an imperfect way. And I pray that we would be open to receive and understand by your spirit what your word says and who you are in our lives and how it is that you desire for our sake, our undivided attention in our worship of you and you alone. And so, Father, we commit this time into your hands. May we understand the divine jealousy that you demonstrate toward us. And may that cause us to respond in a manner that is fitting to the love that you first demonstrated to us in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we commit this morning into your hands. We ask your blessing, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A divine jealousy. It's really important for us to understand what really that means. Jealousy is a state of feeling that is the root of all kinds of divisive and destructive behavior in mankind. Jealousy brings on feelings of envy, of bitterness, of spite, suspicious uh, thinking, distrust, anxiety, all of those things are brought about by a human way of approaching and applying jealousy in our own lives. We see it all around us. In the Bible, it's demonstrated for us. Jealousy caused Cain to murder Abel. Jealousy caused Saul to go after David's life. Jealousy caused Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. And jealousy caused the Jewish leaders to crucify Jesus Christ. So I think it might be a good idea to work this out a bit, this idea of of divine jealousy, in order to fully understand what Paul was saying here, because certainly it was different than the jealousy that I listed in those examples. It's like day and night. It's like darkness and light. It's complete opposite of what was just listed there. Because outside of an understanding, this divine jealousy, of this divine jealousy, we can only know a poisonous jealousy that is destructive, divisive, and even at a certain point, 
leads to death, a deadly poison that infects us. It can infect a church. It can infect a family. It can infect a workplace, friendship even. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Something important to understand is that God did not deliver the Israelites from slavery to go in any, in all directions. It wasn't for that purpose. You're free to go. Well, we're going to go this way, and we're going to go that way, and we're not going to go anyway. We're going to stay here. Why? Because that's what we chose to do. Well, no, he didn't, he didn't deliver them from the bondage of the Egyptians to go in any which way. You see, God was not about to share their affection with other gods in any way, shape, or form. And it wasn't because God was jealous of the Israelites. It's like, oh, now I'm jealous that, that they're going to get to do whatever they want to do. Go in any direction they want to go. Live however they please. No, it wasn't for that. God was not jealous of the Israelites. He was jealous for the Israelites. And there's a huge difference between the two. A huge difference. There is a good jealousy, by the way, that husbands you can have for your wife. There is a good jealousy, wives, that you can have for your husband. You should have that. There is a good jealousy, fathers and mothers, that you can have for your children. Unfortunately, that is lacking today. We seem to think that society is going to bring them up and bring them up okay. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That is not true. It is your job, it is your responsibility to raise them up in the ways of the Lord. And you will be held accountable. And I tell you the truth. There is a huge difference. One is self-centered and the other is selfless. To be jealous of is self-centered. To be jealous of Four is, is self-sacrificing. That's a world of a difference between the two. There was a land that God had set apart for the Israelites. That was a land of milk and honey. Fruitful and made for them. It was good. And God knew that beside him there was no other God. That's not just this saying. That, that's not just this, like, this thing that God had decided to say. No, there is no other God beside God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there is no other God. The psalmist said it well, Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, are they not today? The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Like, wow, those are, those are strong words. They are very strong words. But the, the, the best thing that you can hear is the truth. 
Pray to a chair. See what it does for you. Pray to anything other than the Lord. You will not hear anything back. You might hear the tinkering in your own mind. But beware. Those thoughts are not the thoughts of God if they're not aligned with his word. God knew, and he knows today, that by going after the idols of the nations, people defile themselves with all kinds of evils that are self-destructive, empty, and have no eternal significance whatsoever. Does this sound like we have a God that is jealous for us? Yes, he's jealous for us, not of us. God desires for his people to be pure and holy, and that demands a submission to him, to trust him, and surrender to his will that enables us to see and understand that happiness without holiness is impossible. I know I've tried it. I've tried to pursue happiness on my own in the flesh. Experience this, experience that. Have this, have that. It all came up empty. There is nothing that I need outside of God. He is sufficient for everything. And his word is sufficient for all that pertains to life and godliness. Everything is in there. God's jealousy is always brought forth in a tender heart that burns with passion for the welfare of his people. Even sometimes when his words are stinging, they're convicting. They bring us to our knees and they break us. It's for our welfare. It's for our welfare. And to prove this, all I have to do is point to one place. The cross. That's all I have to do is is point to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's all I have to do. You see, instead of crushing the people who rejected and rebelled against him, he died on the cross with love for them, us, that he might win us back to himself for our sake. We have a tendency to, oh, you, you dissed me. You did this to me. You did that to me. Oh, you know what? Perhaps I'll be indifferent toward you. That's... That's bad. That's really bad, by the way. That's sometimes worse than, than causing pain upon someone deliberately. To be indifferent towards someone is horrible. We have the tendency to do that. God is not indifferent toward us. He wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He was not indifferent towards us when he sent his son to die on the cross. That's love in action. That's agape love. Completely sacrificing That is grace. Even Paul, who was once Saul of Tarsus, he was set on destroying the people of Christ, the people of the way, and is now in this letter demonstrating an understanding of what it is to have a divine jealousy. He is a a man who was himself jealous of the people And he's now jealous for the people. 
He said, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, this was a shepherd's heart. This was a man who was completely devoted to glorifying and praising the Lord. Keep in mind that as he said that, as he wrote those words, he wasn't saying that since I betrothed you to myself, I feel that you should be loyal to me, heeding all the words that I speak to you. By the way, run from the pastor, whoever says that. The pastor is not the good shepherd. And a good under-shepherd will simply be the messenger to betroth you to the bridegroom, to Jesus. He makes that connection. It's not, it's not me. It's not any pastor. It's not any self-proclaimed apostle or prophet. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. This is the heart of Paul. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And with this backdrop, let's take a look at these verses and see how they might stand out when laid on the canvas of Paul's divine jealousy for the brethren in Corinth. Because this is God's divine jealousy. An agape love that is willing to make himself look foolish on their behalf or even be rejected for standing on the truth of God's word. That's what we see. That's what we have before us in these verses. Let's start out. There's three things that we're going to take a look at. Number one, and this is how I've titled these sections. Number one, don't let their tongue fool you. Number two, don't let their money fool you. And number three, don't let their looks fool you. Okay? So those three things in these first 15 verses of this letter to the Corinthians. Let's read, continuing on in verse 3. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received... Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Don't let their tongue fool you. There is a lot of what do they call them? Silver tongue? They call them silver? Yeah. Um, they're all over the place. They're everywhere. Now, we, we've already established from previous chapters, from going back even to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, that Paul is not a skilled speaker. He is not eloquent. He's not one that you could say would come up and um, start giving you, I don't know, uh, bringing you in by his craft of speaking into what he's about to say. He's like, goes straight at it. I love that. He wasn't there to tickle the ear of his listeners. He wasn't there to 
with words that would evoke in the hearts of men to a fleshly motivation, motivational frenzy of personal glory. We, you know what? Motivational speakers will do that. They will, leave, they, they will leave you in such a state to where you feel so uplifted and so ready to go, and you're just, you run out the doors and you're like, okay, now what? I just left, you know, 200 bucks there. 300 bucks, 500 bucks. <sighs> so he's not with me. <laughs> now, Paul was being sarcastic. And saying that he wasn't impressed by these self-proclaimed super apostles. He called them super apostles. Super duper apostles. They're amazing. In your eyes, they're super duper apostles. Yeah, I'm not impressed by them. And I'm definitely not intimidated by them. An apostle is one who is sent. These guys... According to the Apostle Paul, according to the Word of God, were ones who came on their own. They weren't sent. They came on their own. They said, we're an apostle sent by God, and we have a word for you. Hmm. A different Jesus, a different spirit to give you, a different gospel. And there is no such thing as a different gospel. There's only one gospel. One good news. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, while I may be unskilled in speaking, I certainly don't fall short of biblical knowledge. I know the character of God, and I know the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through him. I know him. I may fall short in these eloquent words, everything that will tickle your ear and and help you just really roar. But I can tell you that I can bring about words that will bring you to your knees because they are the very words of the Lord. It will help you understand that without him we are nothing. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there's only one answer and one hope to the depravity of humanity. And that is the one who died on the cross. On the third day, rose from the grave, was glorified after 40 days, and is coming back. What was Paul's fear then? Well, he says it very clearly in verse 3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That was his fear. That was his greatest fear. Why would Paul feel so strongly and care so much? That's the question. Well, because he took it seriously. He was genuinely a convert of the Lord. He surrendered to the Lord, his Lordship, Jesus Christ. He was completely governed by him. He had one eternal life through belief in the Son of God. He regarded himself as a friend of the bridegroom, a man who watches out for the bride in between the engagement and the wedding. And his work included presenting the bride, the church, 
as a pure virgin to her husband, Christ. That, I'm here to tell you, is difficult when you have a bride that likes to wiggle and move and leave and do all kinds of things and believe things that are not of the bridegroom. And Paul's fear at this point was that the church was being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's still the same fear today. This was and is today the giving of people's heart to something other than God. I quoted Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 5. This was and is today the giving of people's hearts to something other than God. In this sense, they were committing, you could say, spiritual adultery, just as we today are doing the same thing. These people were looking for something more sensational than just the truth of who God is and God's grace received through Jesus Christ. It it was something more. I want to experience a little bit more. I want a speaker that really just is charismatic and really brings it forth in a way that is believable for me. Really, it has nothing to do with anything other than the Spirit convicting you of God's truth. That's what it is. You guys want experience and emotion and feelings, and that's not the way the Spirit works. The Spirit works first to convict the person. And he can do, I can, I can read through the word of God and the spirit could be here moving in your heart, in this place, in individuals and us corporately. He can fall upon us in such a way that he moves in our heart. As I just read through, I can read through this chapter, go on to the next one and the next one. And at some point, if you are truly given to the Lord, if you are truly open to receiving from him, the Spirit will give, give you understanding, and I have no doubt. At some point within that reading, if you have been convicted of your sin, you understand God's grace, you will drop to your knees. You will be broken before the God of all creation, and you will submit yourself to Him. God's Word does not return void. The simplicity of the gospel is this. Christ Jesus crucified, resurrected, glorified, and is returning. That's the gospel. But so many people want more. And are even willing to accept this more by willingly listening to false teachers that tell them what they want to hear. You want, you want to hear what you want to hear? You want to listen to those things? I'll tell you what channel to turn to. T-B-N. Go ahead and turn there. You'll hear what you want to hear. Name it and claim it. You'll hear all kinds of religious rhetoric, worldly philosophies, psychology even. They know all that, by the way. Those are some of the things that they major in. And they know how to use you, how to dig into your pocket and just pull everything out of you. 
You want to be fooled? You want to be deceived? Do this. Come and just sit. Every once in a while, just come and sit. And by the way, number one, don't bring your Bible. Okay? Number two, don't read it. Number three, make sure you don't ask God to give you understanding. Lean on your own understanding. By the way, read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Jot that down. All of this, by the way, is sarcasm. Okay? Do all of that, and and you you won't know a thing, and I promise you, you'll be deceived. You'll be led astray. You, You really will. That's the way to do it. You want the best life now? If Okay, so for the person who is outside of Christ, this is your be- the best life, yeah. This is as good as it's going to get. For the Christian, truly, the believer, the one who is, who's placed their hope in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this is the worst it's going to get. This is the worst it's going to get. Because the moment... You close your eyes here, you breathe your last here, you will open your eyes and you will breathe your first breath in heaven in the presence of God, in all of his glory. Now let's talk about triumphalism. Have you ever heard of that? Triumphalism? You may have even prayed for triumphalism. It's subtle, it's deceptive, and it's seemingly good teaching that can trap a person in the clutches of the devil. What is triumphalism? It's the belief that the Christian life should be a series of victories because we are victorious in Christ. Doesn't that sound good? Oh, you should be triumphant. You should be victorious. You should go from mountain peak to mountain peak, skipping If you think positive thoughts long enough and and fake it, you you will make it. (laughs) Proclaim it. Name it. Receive it. It's yours, right? And I don't, again, this is, I love sarcasm, by the way, but is the Apostle Paul, but hopefully it makes the point. Are you getting the point? Okay. Now listen, it's true. We are victorious in Christ. We are victorious in Christ Over what? Over death. What else? Sin. Those two things. That's it. Those two things. In this life, Jesus even warned his disciples. In this life, you will have tribulation. 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 All of us, 100%, I tell you, you will have tribulation. Not because I said it, but because God says it. So it's very important. What do we do in those instances? Well, we're victorious over, we're promises in Christ. We're victorious over sin and death. Those two things. With that, we can live with, with complete and perfect hope. That's it. What's our hope? Is it here on planet Earth? No. It's an eternity with the Lord. Triumphalism is running rampant right now. 
in the church. That, that's along the same lines as your best life now. Let's get over that, church. And that's, by the way, why sometimes we have people running from church to church because they haven't found the pastor that's tickling their ear with things that they want to hear. Don't do that. Don't do that. The only way that we can grow as a family here and truly apply Acts 2.42 through 47 is, is if you stay put and act like a family. Apply the word of God and grow and grow and grow. Do that. Whatever's happened up to this point, done. Done. But as of this moment, from here forward, live with a godly perspective, not with a human perspective. Be careful that we don't turn this around, being fooled to thinking that it is all for our glory, and therefore, in our glory, we will toss a little bit God's way. You know what I'm saying? Man, sometimes, and it, it, it's, not, it's not good how it is that we seek our own glory, um, our own dreams and desires, to the extent to where it's at the expense of truly God receiving all the glory. It's like, we'll do X, Y, Z, we'll do all of this, and when God blesses me and glorifies me, I'm going to give him a little bit. I'm going to say, oh, he's blessing me so much, and we're doing it all in, in, in our strength and not in his strength and by his spirit. Stay humble, church. Stay humble. Even the Apostle Paul is a great example of man who is broken and contrite before the Lord. No, we are to grow up. We are to mature. Put our big boy pants on, you could say. In the knowledge of God's word, in the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer, as we once were, be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. That's the, that's the Apostle Paul's heart. By the way, this is God's inspired word. It is God's heart toward us. To not really know Jesus will leave you susceptible to accepting any Jesus that someone proclaims to you. Not really, uh, to not really know the Holy Spirit will leave you susceptible to believing any spirit that someone gives you. To not really know the gospel of Jesus Christ will leave you susceptible to receiving anything that sounds like good news. That is what Paul was afraid of. Deception within the church, and many have been deceived. Today, it's heartbreaking. It is absolutely heartbreaking. I I couldn't get over this. This morning, I, I just, I couldn't. I was in the prayer room and I had to hold back because I felt like I was going to go into convulsions. I was just sobbing. It, it's hard to see this church. It's hard to see it. And I see too many people being deceived. Too many people going astray, being deceived, being taken by 
where human cunning, they're so witty, they're so smart, they're so eloquent, they're so amazing. Look at everything. Look at everything they have. Look at what they're doing. You're following man. Stop it. Stop it. Can't do that, church. John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Again, what's God's heart? Set you free of him or for him? It's for him. To bring him glory. This truth sets you free from deception and its bondage. So number one, don't let their tongue fool you. Secondly, don't let their money fool you. Verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. The region of Achaia is the location of the Corinthian church. It seems in today's world that money is the indicator of importance and power and draws our attention as if that is what proves something to be of genuine value. Oh, they must be doing it right. Look at them. They look so good on the outside, right? No, not in God's economy. He said man may look on the outside. God looks on the inside. He looks at the heart of man. It's not the outward appearance. That can fool you. Paul was Christ's appointed apostle, a vessel sent to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. He wasn't doing it for the money. He wasn't doing it for the fame and not for the accolades because there was none of that. None of that. In fact, he was in great peril. In fact, he didn't make any money or take any money from the Corinthian believers. The Macedonians had supported him financially. That's who supported him. Other churches. Why did this matter? Wouldn't it be a blessing for this to be the case? You know, a pastor comes in free of charge. I'm just here just to, to serve. Of course, that would be wonderful, right? But in those days, in many cases, not even in these days that we're living in, is that even looked as something good? In Paul's day, if a man didn't demand a handsome paycheck for speaking, then the people would be led to believe that it was that he wasn't worth listening to. Who's, who's is he in high demand? Uh, is, is he given a high honorarium? You know, is does he is he speaking in the mega churches? Uh, well, then, who is he? He probably has, doesn't have a word for us. It's the same today, folks. If I were to give, I, I could pop off some names right now and, and tell you, if they were to come here, this little church would be busting at the seams. 
we'd have to put up chairs and it'd be standing room only. But if I invited a friend, a dear pastor of mine to come and share God's word and teach it well, you may not even come. Be like, oh, who is that? I think I'm going to go somewhere else that Sunday. And it happens a lot. I I say that uh, jokingly, but at the same time, I tell you, if, if someone's coming on that Sunday that people don't know, they say, I'm checking out. Uh, the pastor's off somewhere else, so am I. I'm, I'm out. And then they'll come back, perhaps, when the pastor's here. They'll only invite their friends if, if a big name comes in. Oh, you got to come. <laughs> you you got to check it out. So this guy, I won't say any names, all right? is coming, like, really? All right, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Let's go listen to him. It happened then. It's still happening today, church. It's the same thing. This word is timeless. It's applying today. Paul wrote it as if he was writing to the church in the IE. Well, Paul was telling the Corinthian believers that whether they understood his love for them or not, he will continue to avoid being a financial burden to them, and it was all done out of a deep love for them. You question my love? That's, that's okay. You don't, I don't have to you know, convince you of my love. God knows my heart toward you is what he was saying. It's okay. I, I, I'm accountable to the Lord, and he knows my heart. And I'm still not going to be a burden to you to prove that I'm worth listening to. It's not me that's worth listening to anyway. It's the word of God. And while they may have been embarrassed by Paul's unimpressive looks and unskilled speaking and even lack of being an, uh, maybe an impressive public figure, Paul loved them so much that he would not give up on them, pursued them, and worked hard to bring them back to Christ from their worldly way of thinking. That's where his heart was. I want to bring you back from that pit of deception that you're in. I want to bring you back from that. So, number one, don't let their tongue fool you. Don't let their money fool you. Thirdly, don't let their looks fool you. Verse 12. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Xavier Reese, there is fungus among us. I will never forget when he said that. That's Raul Reese's brother. They don't look gross on the outside, but inside, they're deadly. The work of Satan does not announce itself by, hey, I'm, I used to be known as Lucifer, and now I'm known as Satan. It's like, what? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't come that way. The worker of Satan also does not willingly reveal himself. Like, hey, you notice my, 
my red appearance and my forked tail and my pitchfork. Yeah, you think mine's big, you should see. No, he, they don't come like that. They, they, they don't. Listen to this. They're described like this. False apostles, number one. Number two, deceitful workmen. And even, number three, apostles of Christ. And Satan even disguises himself as an angel of light. Listen closely. Know God's word. Learn how to discern the false from the true. And don't be fooled by the way someone comes across, or even worse, how cool they look. I mean, beside here. I'm just joking. No, seriously, we, we, we get trapped into that. It's, it's amazing the level of deception. The way a person looks, the whole environment, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing what we are deceived with. Well, our, our answer could be, well, they seem to be very genuine. Well, they're genuinely wrong. They have the right appearance. That, that, does that really matter? If they're not bringing forth the word of God correctly and in its proper context? Are you drawn by their voice and their looks and their money and their words that tickle your, and I don't mean to offend you, your ignorant ears? Because that really is, I'm not calling you stupid, by the way, okay? <laughs> Let's get that straight, all right? Ignorance is, sim- is simply not knowing. That's all it is. And if we don't know, church, that's what's going to happen. These ears are going to be tickled. We're going to want to hear and we'll receive exactly what we want to hear. What I'm trying to tell you is that you fall into deception if you don't know God's word and you don't abide in God's word. Do you really believe someone if they simply say that they are apostles or prophets or even pastors sometimes? I hope not. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it says, Now these Jews, the Jews, by the way, grew up in the Torah, in the word of God, in the Old Testament. They knew it. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I always tell you, those of you who have been here for any length of time, I always tell you, do not take my word for it. Okay? I will challenge you. Come here taking notes. If there's anything that causes you to kind of... hmm. That, that didn't kind of sound right. Jot it down, look it up yourself, and make sure that what I'm telling you is sound and in line with God's word. Okay? Be like the Bereans here. Test the scriptures out. Because you will be drawn away by your own desires if you don't. James 1, 12 through 15 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Paul was not intimidated by the self-proclaimed apostles, which they were not. Paul was not demoralized by even the Christians' worldly thinking, although he could have been, but he did not allow himself to be demoralized. No, Paul was determined to persevere in working to undermine the work of these satanic false teachers to strengthen the brethren with the truth of God's word and win them to Christ. That, that is my whole desire, by the way. I have no desire for anything else but to win you to Christ, to simply proclaim to you the gospel, the whole counsel of God, and for you to be drawn to him. That's it. Now, Paul knew that the false teacher's end was destruction and death apart from God, and so will it be for all those who ignorantly follow them. In Luke chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, it says, And he said to his disciples, Jesus speaking, says, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Woe to them that are leading people astray. Don't let their tongue fool you. Don't let their money fool you. And don't let their looks fool you. God's jealousy is a divine jealousy in a tender heart that burns with passion for the welfare of his people. Again, the cross. The cross. Think about the cross. There's power in the cross and the blood, shed blood of Christ. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Instead of crushing the people who rejected and rebelled against him, Jesus died on the cross with love for them that he might win them back to himself for their sake. It's for you and I. We are saved by grace through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. And as I say over and over and over again, I believe the moment you understand that, the, the, the Spirit brings that to your understanding and you are convicted, not by any words that anyone has spoken, but, but by the very truth of God's word and who Jesus is, the Son of God. As, as you receive that grace, you are saved. As you surrender your life to him, you repent. In that acknowledgement... And that surrender and that salvation is evident to everyone around you. You can't hide that because you rejoice in the fact that you have that certain hope in Christ of being in God's glory forever. You, you know that you've been forgiven. I'm going to read this in closing. <clears throat> it's John chapter 3. Verses 16 through 21. And we will close with this. John chapter 16, or uh, John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. Through him, 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Father, I pray that you do your convicting work in our hearts to your glory, that we may be a people who truly know what it, what it is to be holy, Lord, in your Son, Jesus Christ, and know genuine happiness, a blessedness that can only be known in Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone here who has not come to that place of simple surrender, of acknowledging, of believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who died for their sins, was resurrected on the third day and was glorified and today sits at the right hand of the Father. That today be the day of salvation, today be the day of surrender, of acknowledging that truth and simply receiving that work of grace upon themselves and unto themselves, Father. As you will pursue us with the righteous love, And there's nowhere that we can hide from you. Thank you, Lord, that we can't hide from you. I pray for everyone here that you would continue to do a work in their lives and you would be blessed and honored. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.